please be seated. So we're looking at the miracles of Jesus, and each of them reveals increasingly more of who he is and what God is like. And as Ben said so well last week, the miracles reveal that because Jesus is God, he has authority over all things. He has authority over creation and sickness and the demonic. And he uses this authority to demonstrate that God loves us. If you take up your Bibles, we're in Matthew 14. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 14, there's another reveal. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately... So straight after the passage that we heard last week, ministering all day long to a crowd almost exactly the same size as the average pirates or penguins crowd. Not a jibe, because it's 5,000 men plus women plus children, roughly the same size as those two things. All day long ministering to a group that big on his own and feeding them on one pack lunch no taffy, no crackerjack at the big game, is exhausted in every way, Jesus. And then immediately after all of that exhausting work, he made the disciples, verse 22, get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, that is not a miracle, but it is a reveal. It reveals something about the concern of Jesus, that although he is emotionally and physically drained at this point in the day, he's still looking out for the team first. It says here that he made them get into the boat. I think almost shoved them. There's a, there's a, there's a real kind of force, a compulsion kind of a word here. He compelled them to get into the boat. Their instinct, of course, was to stay. Their instinct was to hang around where Jesus was and to remain in the place where the miracle had taken place. And uh, they like to hang around where the action is. And this idea inspired me because the staff team is working too hard in our church at the moment. And they're hanging around where the action is. And I've told them that I'm going to force them out. I'm going to suspend them with pay, lock them out of the building, and put them all on a boat if they don't take a vacation this summer. They hang around at work all the time and dial in by remote and all the rest of it because they believe in the mission of the church. They believe in it and they're seeing it bear fruit. So they are seeing the conversion of the lost, people turning to Christ. They're seeing seeing the healing of the sick and the repair of broken relationships, seeing plenty of that. They're seeing the release from demonic strongholds such as addiction and depression and pain. They're aware of these things happening. They like these things happening. They believe that this is a good thing and so they're working too hard. It's normal church stuff. There's nothing weird about that list of fruits. It's normal church stuff. But now scale that up to these disciples who've just witnessed the feeding of 5,000, an absolute miracle. It's perfectly understandable that they would want to hang around where the miracle took place. Let's review the miracle. Let's revel in the miracle. Let's see if there's going to be another miracle. They want to be where the action is that Jesus makes them stop, kicks them into a boat, takes them rest. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up uh, on the mountain by himself to pray, because Jesus needs some rest as well. 
Now, last week, Ben told us that he is an introvert and that, like Jesus, he also needs to be alone and to have some rest after a long morning with a load of people. I don't get it. I'd be quite happy just to do church all day, just let coffee hour go on till midnight. Someone get some beers, someone else get some pizzas, and we'll just do more church. It, of course, would probably be Tracy getting the beers and the pizzas because she's like me, only on crack. When Ben preached about his need to be on his own after church, I could see Tracy looking at him like, this guy's mad. Like, I didn't even know if he's a real Christian, Alex. Like, I could see it in her eyes. Uh, It's a classic dynamic, just by the way. It's a classic church dynamic when a staff team gets to a certain size. The, The youth minister is on drugs, and the curate is the most like Jesus, and the rector is caught somewhere in between. It's not really part of the sermon, it's just an observation. So, it's also made up. When uh, evening came, he was, he was there alone. It just emphasises the point. You know, he's, he's on his own now. This is, he's reached his saturation point. Believe it or not, even I have a saturation point with people. It's probably like three in the morning, but Jesus has had enough. He gets on his own, and uh, it says in verse 24, just to emphasize it further, the boat by this time was a long way from the land. And it seems, the boat with the disciples in it, it seems as though one of those little winds and squalls and storms has got up, and it's blown the vessel out into the middle of the sea, and it's beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Verse 25 continues, in the fourth watch of the night, perhaps by the dawn's early light, to coin a phrase, He came to them walking on the sea. Now, remember what we've said many times. When when we look at Scripture, we want to look for various layers in the passage. And we start with the physical, just what is going on in the passage. The first layer, well, Jesus is walking on water. And we know that you cannot walk on water. Therefore, on a physical level, this is a miracle. But uh, I want you to go a layer deeper, as we always try to do, and uh, you will recall that in recent weeks we've looked at this whole motif of the sea, and we have found that the sea is laden with theological significance. So think to Genesis, how it is that God brings order out of the chaos of the sea, and how with Noah, and with Moses, and with Jonah, and with Ezekiel, he brings both salvation and judgment through the sea. Think about those psalms that we looked at and the book of Nahum and the book of Micah and how it is that God controls the sea with his authority and his word. And then think about Revelation that we looked at recently, a glimpse of the eternal throne of God himself and how though the throne of God flashes with lightning and peals of thunder around the sea, around the throne revelation tells us, as it were, there is a sea set solid like glass or crystal and the people of God gather around the throne along with the heavenly host. They gather standing on the sea around the throne to say, holy, 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 worshiping in endless adoration. God, the Lamb who sits on the throne, and they're standing in the heart of the sea as they do it. So when the disciples see Jesus walking on the sea, they're not doing the theology that we've done, not yet anyway. And so without the theology, what they say is, when they saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. 
It's such a weird thing to see, a man walking on the sea, that without the theology, all they have is a Hollywood explanation. And they cried out in fear. And Scripture doesn't tell us what it was they cried out. Often it does say what they said. Uh, Here it just says they cried out. We don't get the detail. I think it was just a noise. I think they just went, I don't think it was a coherent, you know, oh, goodness me, what is this? I think it was out-of-control panic. It's very weird. And Jesus spoke to them saying, verse 27, take heart, have some courage, have some comfort. It's what they need to hear first. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. The scholar Lloyd Ogilvie counts 366 do not be afraidses in scripture. And they call that scholarship. It's not, it's just adding. But, you know, I'm sure they wrote some other good stuff. I reckon you can get a computer to do this. I think my Bible software just does that. It's not scholarship. Anyway, Lloyd Ogilvy counts 366. The inference that that, uh, this person draws from this is significant. That is theological, though. And they ask, you know, why is it that we are so frequently told not to be afraid in Scripture? Well, because frequently we are afraid. That's why. And often we're just afraid of things around us and things going wrong, but fascinatingly, one of the most common occurrences of this be not afraid phrase is when God is revealed. It's normally God appearing to them that makes people afraid. I think we need to lay hold of and remind ourselves here of the fear of the Lord, just how significantly alarming it is when God draws near. This is a revelation of God on the water. And Jesus says, it is I. It's a very profound statement. It does not sound profound in English. It's me. It is I. It sounds like, you know, hey guys, it's me, and that's it. But uh, in the original language, what Jesus says here is quite distinct. It's quite odd, unusual, uh, unique even. Uh, Ego amy. There's a weird joining of words. It means I, I am. I, I am. It's an unusual way of putting it. Instead of saying, it's me, he says, I, I am. It's repetitive, it's jarring, it stands out, it's unusual. And many scholars observe that in the Old Testament, when God is asked for his name, he says the same thing. So, for example, when Moses is, is sent to the people of God in slavery in Egypt to lead them out to salvation, by the way, through the sea... God appears to him in a burning bush, and Moses says, well, they're never going to believe me unless I know your name. Who are you? Who shall I say it is that sends me? And God says, I am what I am, or I am that I am, that repetitive uh, thing with I am. In our first reading, it's even more clear, that reading from Isaiah. God says, I, I am the Lord. The word the Lord means I am. I, I am, I am is what he says. It's jarring, it's unusual in the original language. And he says, I, I am, I am who makes a way in the sea. Prophetically, God is the God who parts the waves, who stills the sea, who walks on water and reveals himself with a name, I am. I am thus It became such a sacred phrase to the Jewish people that they were not even allowed to utter it. It was an offense for Jews even to say, I am. And Peter says to you, who are you? And Jesus says, I, I am. Not just a lovely piece of grammar with the pronoun in the subject case. It is I. Lovely. That's how we should say it. But I, 
I am. It is a phrase reserved for the appearance of God alone. He does it. He says it. Logically, therefore, he is it. It is a revelation that Jesus is God. So the key question for them is the same. It's the key question for us. How do we react to the reveal? What are we going to do with this? We now know Jesus is God. So what? What are we going to do with it? And uh, Peter starts to react. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, why on earth would he say that? Why not just say, oh, phew. You never guess what, but John here thought you were a ghost. Silly John. But we all knew better. Uh, It's a bit choppy out, Jesus. Why don't you come into the boat with us where it's safe? We know that you can do something about this. We've seen it before. Uh, Join us where we are. Come into my world. Why instead does he say, call me out into yours? Why does he ask to be called out where he doesn't belong? Well, there's a whole bunch of ideas about it, but uh, if you look at the context, in the calming of the storm, they are passive recipients of a miracle. They say, Lord, save us. Then in the feeding of the 5,000, they are administrative participants in the miracle. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. So the logical next step, I believe, as faith builds up, is see one, help one, do one. It's the leadership square. It's classic discipleship. It's time for Peter to do a miracle. That's why he wants to get out of the boat, because he's ready to do one. Jesus said, verse 29, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. You see how Peter does what God does. This is normal church stuff. Christians should do what God does. It is the logical next step of turning to Christ in faith. And in fact, John 14 records Jesus saying, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Peter could have flown across the water according to the words of Jesus. Well, the author John Ortberg, whose book I've used so much this week that I have to reference him several times, lest I lose my job for plagiarism. Uh, He's quoted obliquely in in this sermon a lot. John Ortberg, he says, we've all, all of us, all Christians, been called to walk on the water. We've all been called out to be water walkers. It's a universal call. And he says, if you want to walk on the water, then you have to get out of the boat. You might not literally be in a boat. You might not literally have traveled to church in a boat. If you came on Tuesday, you could have done. But probably today you drove. But we all have metaphorical boats. We all have sort of symbolic, metaphorical boats in our life of some kind. We have these jobs and these homes and investments and qualifications and commitments. We have familiar things around us that make us feel safe. And I've seen people doggedly stay in their boat consistently do a job that they hate and have hated for 30 years or consistently put on some sort of social event in the community that they detest. They'd never go to the event if they had their freedom, but they end up running it year after year. Why is it that we keep doing and having and holding on to these things that sometimes we don't even want? It's because they feel safe. 
the things around us make us feel safe. Getting out of these things, it feels like too much of a risk. And should we be really honest, because it's church, who are we kidding? We haven't got a boat, have we? We have a whole flotilla of boats, some of us in the West. We have a whole pile of boats all moored up. They make us feel safe. I have seen people make their boat into their God. This is the place where they say no to Jesus. Jesus calls us out of the boat, out of our depths, onto the water. Now, I don't want you to feel too beaten up by this. I think that we're always going to end up putting our faith in things around us. It's just a sort of inevitable part of, of life. I've found in my own life that no sooner do I get rid of a boat than another one comes along. You know, it's, it's normal to trust in things around us more than we trust in Jesus, but it's stupid. And we're called to stop doing this. Uh, boats... Also, here's another encouragement for you. Are not inherently bad. Investments, jobs, certificates, homes, they're not inherently bad things. Look back to verse 22 at the beginning of the passage, and you see how it is that Jesus shoves them into the boat. He put them there. It's not a bad boat. But just because Jesus put you somewhere doesn't mean that he wants you to stay there, is the point. I suggest asking God to call you out of your boat. I suggest actively praying that God would call you out upon the water, deliberately asking God to do that. In fact, I prayed that at the beginning of the sermon, and you all said amen, which means you're in trouble now. So, so that's what you wanted, okay? We are called out upon the water. So uh, try something new. Give sacrificially. Uh, ditch a secular commitment. And uh, if a secular commitment is preventing you from taking on a kingdom one, ditch two secular commitments, take on a kingdom one, and then have some rest. Do something countercultural. Do something different. Do something new. And when you do, I expect people will notice. And that is the point. When we do weird stuff, people notice. If no one notices that you're any different, perhaps you're no different. It's a worrying thought. When I was at college, someone once said to me, they said, Alex, you're great because you say that you're a Christian, but you're just like all of us. I thought, yeah, that's pretty cool. Made it. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a compliment. I was proud. I thought, I've done it. I thought, I have managed to find a way to believe in God, but live my life exactly like all the people that don't. And I, I thought to myself, I can't believe that my spiritual forebears were so stuffy and inept that uh, they never found this amazing sweet spot that I alone have managed to chance upon. <laughs> Until it dawned on me that the reason why I looked no different is because I was no different. And I turned to Christ years after calling myself a Christian. That's not uncommon. Grades, certificates, prizes and popularity, almost everything I did was a boat, was a boat for me. You know, I think human recognition of some kind w- w- were my boats. 
And uh, what I wanted to do actually was come top in law and win the prize, but also kind of come top in drinking contests and be the most popular guy in college. And, you know, if I could get my name on the wall of the law department for top grades and my name on the ceiling of the pub for drinking a gallon in two minutes flat, then, then that would be great. It wasn't great. It was a time of horrible depression, as many of you have heard me uh, preach. Do you know what the thing that most churchgoers have in common with non-believers is? It is our boats. It's that we're in boats. We're a little bit different to non-believers in that we say to Jesus, how about I row my boat over to you, Jesus, and, you know, I'll hang out near you in the boat. But, but what we have in common is that we're in the boat. We're finding our security and our comfort in the familiar things that the Creator gave to us rather than the Creator Himself. And we don't like to get out of them. Don't rock the boat, they say, all right? Don't get out of the boat. No one wants to stand up in a, in a storm in a boat. John Ortberg says, and it's not rude because it's a quote, that the other disciples, like most people, are just inert and stuck in the boat, and he calls them boat potatoes. Our churches are just full of boat potatoes, pew potatoes, ballast. People who, whose, whose principal ministry is to warm a piece of wood with their cheeks for an hour and go home again. And I can't help but feel that God is calling us to do more than that and to be more than that. And boy, when we are, will they not notice. And wow, when this church takes off as it is doing, what comes next? Ortberg warns, if you live in the boat, you will eventually die of boredom. Many Christians are bored silly, just absolutely bored rigid with church. And they misattribute the cause of their boredom. It was the sermon. It was the liturgy. It was the music. It was the carpet, the coffee, the time, you know, the mission. It isn't any of those things. It's not the boat's fault It's our refusal to get out of the boat that has us so bored. No one who is standing on a lake is going to be experiencing boredom. Here's a lesson from Peter. If you decide to get out of the boat, you're going to have to fix your eyes on Jesus because you are at risk if you get out of your boat. Peter, very quickly, gets distracted by the storm, by the the, the fear of the things around him. And when he saw the wind, verse 30, he was afraid again. I put the again in. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. He became more afraid of the storm than he was of God. That was his mistake. And uh, I have found, in the same way, like Peter, when I'm out of my depth, which is often, that I, I, I am more likely to cry out for help when I feel like I don't know what to do. When I feel like I've run out of human strength, that's when I'm most likely to cry out for help, Lord, save me. The beauty of water walking, if you choose to do this, is that you will be living in a place where you have no choice other than to call out to Jesus for help and strength. And, of course, what he finds as he calls out immediately, there's that word again, is that Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. The minute you cry out to Jesus for help, he is gracious and merciful, and he rescues and he saves and he heals. This isn't about some great feat of strength or great sort of fortitude and being a super Christian. It's the glory of God 
that enables him to walk on water. And it is the love of God that lifts him up when he's starting to sink. One more thing. Do you see how it spreads? Do you see as Peter does a miracle and gets out of the boat, how, how, how this sort of starts to spread? Verse 33 says, those in the boat worshipped him. So this miracle, two miracles, Peter does one as well, uh, is, is another reveal, and the water walking leads to worship. People around notice that this is unusual, and so um, they start a worship. It's, I think, a glimpse of the future. Go back to Revelation, where there's that throne, and there's the lightning, and there's the thunder, and there's the lamb upon the throne, and around the throne, as it were, there is a sea of, of glass like crystal, and the people of God and the creatures of God gather around, standing upon the waters around the throne, worshiping. There's a connection here. I think for a moment, as, as Jesus walks on the water and solidifies it as it were, well, we get a, a sort of rending of the heavens, a glimpse of the eternal, and suddenly we realize that the only thing to do when God comes to you upon the waters is to draw near in faith and worship. The disciples worship. Christ calls us to rest then to risk, as he is revealed, to respond in worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you love us and you call us out upon the water. And for many of us, the boat feels safe. But in the boat, there is boredom and atrophy. So, Father... As we prayed earlier and dared to say amen, I pray that you would call us out upon the water. Be faithful to us when we are faith low and faith less and faith medium and increase our our faith, please. God, would you call us to be a church that so does this, that our friends and neighbors take notice of the things going on here and can only worship as they catch a glimpse of you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.